Do you have a story to tell about a terrible medical conversation? I want to hear from you. Please email me at christine at christinemeyermd.com. I can't wait for you to tell me more. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tell Me More. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Meyer. On the show, we break down some of the worst conversations in healthcare. Why? Because I believe that together we can build better ones. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Tell Me More, a podcast about making better healthcare conversations. So, you know, for those of you who've been listening all along, we have had many, many patients on the show who talk about their less than satisfying medical conversations. We've had a few pharmacists on the show who share some pretty terrible conversations they've had with doctors. But today, I'm so happy to introduce Dr. Linkow. We are going to be talking to our first physician on the podcast to kind of get maybe the other side of the story. Dr. Linkow, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. And thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So I'm fascinated by your story, Ron. So I, I want to start by sharing with our audience that you are a pain management doctor. Do you have a non-surgical specialty or do you do some surgery? So it's basically a non-surgical specialty. I specialize in non-surgical musculoskeletal medicine. Most of my practice is back pain and neck pain. That's probably 60 to 80% of the people I see and treat in the office. But a lot of times there's other issues that go along with that, that are hidden, that aren't present at the time that I kind of unearth. But I really treat any pain issues. And I do perform mini surgical procedures, we'll call them, minimally invasive procedures. Kind of like, you know, when, when cardiology first came out, they were just doing catheterizations and more as the years went on, they started doing these, you know, other like valve replacements. Well, it's the same thing now with pain management where we're doing these minimally basic procedures with tiny, tiny incisions. So we are getting into that realm where we're doing these tiny, minimally invasive procedures, which is great because patients don't have to go under this big procedure and right. big recovery. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that doing less to the patient whenever possible while still improving their outcome is everybody's goal, right? But before you stepped into this, you you were actually in training in an internal medicine program, and the plan was to do what? The plan was to do primary care. I grew up in a household where my father was a primary mm -hmm. care physician. He's now retired, but that's what I always thought I was going to do. I was going to join him, and everything was going to be great. And I was doing my internal medicine residency, which is three years of training, working nights, weekends, 80 hours a week. And then I was like six months shy of finishing and I was doing a, a rotation in this field called physical medicine and rehabilitation, which I didn't know what that was. I, I had very little knowledge about it, but I'm like, this is pretty great. Like this guy's using his hands and the, the history taken to figure out the diagnosis. I, I really enjoy this. So I had a, an epiphany at the time, like, I, I think I'm going to change my whole career path. <laughs> wow. Well, so, you know, I did an internal medicine residency and I, when I was six months from finishing, I was also, I don't know, like seven months pregnant or something. And the thought of, you know, shifting gears at that moment and starting all over, like it still makes me nauseous. That was so long ago. It was 24 years ago and I still can't even imagine. So when, well, let's start with this part. So when you were making these decisions, these very hard decisions, so you're married, right? 
And so you were having these internal conversations, right, about what to do in this fork in the road. I'm really curious about that. So can you like compare and contrast for me? Like, here's what I like about primary care, but then there's this. How did those conversations in your head go? So it went like this, where I primary care was, it's, it's a great field. It's all I knew. I worked as a kid in my dad's office doing billing and whatever else was in the office. And so that's all I knew. But then I just, something about it didn't, I didn't have passion for it like I thought it was going to have. And that's kind of where I had this thought process, fork in the road kind of decision, epiphany, whatever you want to call it. And I'm like, I, I just want to do something that's going to make me happy. Unfortunately, that decision is going to cost me four years of my life of extra training. <laughs> right. Oh so I, you know, I did four years of college, master's program, four years of medical school, oh three years God. of internal medicine residency. So we're already talking like many, many years. And I'm going to add three years on top of that. Plus, if I do a fellowship, which I did another year. So when I was, if I did all this, I wouldn't finish till I was 35 years old. <laughs> wow. And so I went to Hope's Cookies, which is this really good cookie place in, in uh, Bryn Mawr. <laughs> and my, and my, wife, my wife loves it. So I, I went there. I got a bunch of cookies. I came, I came home to my wife and said, hey, just want to chew on a cookie for a second. I have some big news for you. <laughs> wow. And I told her, I'm going to change my whole career. My whole career and apply for this residency, which I had no, there was no guarantee I was going to get a spot because I was competing with, you know, thousands, uh, hundreds of medical students. Right. But I, I, I took, the, took the risk that I was going to hopefully get a spot. So you're talking to your wife and what did she say when she was like, oh, thank you for the cookie. Do whatever you want, honey. <laughs> like, that's not how it went, is it? <laughs> it's not. And she's six months pregnant. Oh uh, so we, 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 we had a kid on the way due in July, our first child. and. So she did not take it well because we had <laughs> bought a house recently, expecting this bump in my salary, mortgage to pay, and now I'm just stepping back and you know, starting all over again, basically. Wow. And yeah. She was not happy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know what? Yeah. I think, boy, if you stayed in a path that you were not passionate about, that would lead to probably not you being your best doctor, I would guess. That's what happens to a lot of us. Yeah. 100%. That's exactly right. And I'm, and I'm so thankful I changed my career now all these years later. It's the best decision of my life. Oh, I'm so glad to hear yeah. that. I mean, honestly, yeah. I, you, I hear from so many doctors that are just like, oh, I can't wait to retire. Like, this is the worst. And it's constant, like, you know, reconsidering their entire life's calling. That's not where you are, is it? It's not where I am. I'm, I'm the, kind of the opposite. I'm the, I'm the, happy doctor. I train medical students in my office. I, I, and I, and I love teaching and I love teaching patients about their problems and, and I, and I love making diagnoses and, uh, and things that, you know, so I, I really enjoy what I do. So amazing. And we need more doctors like you in every single specialty. So you mentioned, you know, teaching patients about their conditions. And so you have a lot of conversations with a lot of patients, right? And for me, as a doctor that would refer patients to you, the patients I send to a pain management doctor are some of the hardest patients in our practice because by definition, if I'm sending this patient to you, we've already done some stuff. You know, they've been to PT, they've had imaging, they've been on meds and we're kind of like, oh no. And we all know that chronic pain is horrible for patients and leads to so much other bad downstream things. So can you recall, can you tell me about one of the most difficult pain conversations you had to have with a patient? Sure. So 
I mean, there's there's been many through the years, but one thing that comes to mind, and it was ultimately it was a very good ending, but it was an 18 year old girl that was referred to my office by a pediatrician at the time. She had known the doc, you know, pediatrician forever, and and she went to the pediatrician's office with two complaints. One complaint was I have a little bit of neck pain, but I also can't raise my right arm, mm. which is like you hear that 18 year old, that's alarming. But the pediatrician goes, ah, don't worry about the arm thing. Go see pain management. And he looked at my name on a list of doctors that took Medicaid, which I did, and I still do. And she went to my office. And ironically, this was a doctor I rotated with as a medical student 20 years previous. So I kind of sort of knew the guy and I knew his style. But she went to my office and I'm examining her and she's got so many red flags. She can't move her right arm. She's got weakness, like zero out of five strength. In other words, she's 18 and she can't lift her arm up. Oh my gosh. She has weakness in her leg. She has all these things that we as doctors worry about, like increased reflexes and all these things that are really abnormal. But the most striking thing was the, was the weakness. And so I really suspected a tumor. And that's what I thought about my brain. But she's there with her mom. She's 18. I can't tell her that in the office. So I said, listen, we need to get imaging immediately. I needed to do an MRI of the brain and suspecting there's something abnormal, although I can't say what it is right now, but um, I'm suspecting there's an abnormality. I didn't use the word cancer or tumor because I wasn't sure at the time. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to scare them even more than they were already potentially scared. Mm -hmm. So they ultimately had the MRI. It showed a tumor in the back of the brain, cerebellar tumor, which is by the brainstem. And so I called the pediatrician. I said, listen, Dr. So and so, you've known this patient forever. I've done this patient just one time. She has a tumor in her brain. Do you want to call and tell her that, or do you want me to? And expecting him to say, Oh, I- I've known her forever. I'll make the phone call. He's like, No, no, you can call her. Oh, what? I'm oh, like, my God. <laughs> I'm like, All right. So I, I'm like, All right. Well, I was going to send her to CHOP. Is that okay with you? And he's like, Yeah, yeah, go ahead and do that. And I was kind of like, annoyed at the time thinking, good dude, you've known this guy, this patient forever. I've just met her one time. Mm -hmm. Like you want me to deliver this bad news to her? And, but I, so I hung up the phone. I called the mom and I said, you know, your daughter, I have some upsetting news. The MRI shows a big tumor in her brain. You need to go to the MRI center, get the actual CD. Don't trust the report, but get the CD and go right to CHOP's emergency room. And that's what they did. And she she took it well as well as you could take it because she was probably in that frantic mode as a mom that you're you know just trying to get your kid to the right place so that's what she did and ultimately it was an inoperable tumor but radi- but they used this proton radiation therapy and she's great now she's fine oh, wow. and all these years later she's doing very well she's in college she's doing really great but you know if she I guess hadn't been in my doorstep but she probably would have still been living with this thing or maybe somebody would have also would have diagnosed it, which I uh, hope would be the case. But, you know, I, I still see the patient. I, I see the parents as patients of mine. Oh my God. And they're, all, they're very, very happy that they came into my office because we basically cut off the tumor before it got too big. Wow. So wow. there's so many layers in that one story. First of all, I don't know if you know this, but I'm married to a pediatrician. And, you know, they are a special breed. Like, you've got to be some kind of person to be a pediatrician. Aside, you know, a little bit annoying, never, you know, fully mature, but definitely like 
deeply caring and invested usually in their patients. So I'm so surprised that that doctor was like, ah, nah, you give her a call. Also, just the conversation you had with that doctor, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like I would be like, oh my God, thank you so much. I'm so grateful that you did this. And wow, what can I do to help? And But I get the sense that he was just like, ah, she's your thing now. Do you find that doctors nowadays are just kind of tired and kind of like, if somebody else can do this work, let me just pass it on. Have you seen that? So I, in my practice, I have the personality that I take everything on and I, and I want to be that person to take everything on. So I give patients my email address, my personal, I have a patient email address so they could communicate with me directly. So I don't even get to that point because I kind of want to be the guy that's going to take mm-hmm. that on. So mm-hmm. I, I will call the family doctor, the preferred provider and say, here's what I'm doing. Here's the diagnosis and here's the plan. And I'll, if I need to refer to the patient out, I refer them out, but I'll take care of everything. I got a one. And, and I'm also type A with my patients. Yeah. So I want to make sure it gets done. Right. So, so this way I could just, you know, make sure the patient gets from point A to point B. So I usually take that on myself. So I don't even get to the point where I'm like trying to have someone else do the work. I just, I want to be the guy to do it. Make uh, sure the patient gets oh the right God. care. Please don't ever <laughs> retire. Like seriously, we need so many more like you. So there's two other parts of the conversation that I keep trying to play in my mind, like if I was in your shoes. So the first is when she's in front of you and you know something bad's happening, like there's no way this is going to be a good thing. Like you, you know that, but you have to somehow relay to the patient that this is not good. Some kind of imaging needs to be done. And so I have many, many, many clinicians in my practice. I've had many doctors, NPs, PAs come and go. Many years ago, I got a patient complaint because they saw one of our clinicians, who, by the way, is no longer there, (laughs) who said, this is a quote. So I feel something in your belly and it's probably cancer. So we need to blah, blah, blah. Ultimately, you know, they weren't wrong. The lady had a really big stomach tumor that was palpable, like through her abdominal wall. So they didn't tell her wrong information, but God, that's not how you say it. So, you know, as a doctor, you're kind of balancing, like you want to be truthful. You want to relay like the level of importance that this thing has, but you also don't want to alarm them. You want to kind of lead into it. So is that something that you think is just inherent to doctors? Is that something you learned? Did you learn it the hard way? Did you learn it from seeing other doctors? How do you get that instinct on how to share your news like that? Probably all the above. I think part of it is just who I am and inherent, but part of it is seeing other providers through the years. I always tell my medical students, you have all these rotations, you have all these doctors you're learning from, take a little bit of each doctor and make that and make it your own style. So that's what I've done through the years. I, you know, having trained for seven years, I spent a lot, well, seven years in residency, plus I guess 11 years, I spent a lot of time with different doctors. So I took little bits and pieces of each doctor and, and I made that my own style. Like, for example, this one doctor I worked with, this is pre-COVID, but he gave everyone a hug at the end of the visit. He gave everyone a hug. And whether he spent like two minutes with the patient or 10 minutes or 30 minutes, everyone felt important at the end of the visit. Right. So I, I'm like, I'm going to take that. I'm, I'm going to start doing it in my practice. So the first couple of years, so the first half of my career, I did that uh-huh. and I gave everyone a hug, but then COVID kind of ruined that. <laughs> so I, I, I stopped doing that. But I thought that was something special that this doctor did and it made the patients feel special. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, so, I'm, a, so, I'm a big patient hugger too, but 
it takes me a minute, you know, because also you don't know like how the patient's going to take it. Like, you know, so then tell me about the other side of your medical conversations. You, this was a very difficult one. Have you had any conversations where the patient more than the situation was just a hard patient, someone that was just difficult to please or difficult to convince to do the right thing or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, there's a guy I have in my practice who is, he was injured at work. I, I treat a lot of injured workers. So part of my practice, people get injured at work, they need to see a pain management doctor or they need someone to help their pain. So there's a gentleman I was seeing and I saw him a couple of times, did some procedures, did injections, and he kind of sort of got better. But at the same time, he was referred to a surgeon. And it's a surgeon I work with a lot and I respect the surgeon. He does a nice job. But the patient didn't need surgery, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I saw the guy and he told me, hey, I'm seeing the surgeon. And he recommended I get surgery. And I'm like, well, did your doctor talk to you about potential outcomes of the surgery? What to expect? In other words, will your pain be gone or will it still persist? And he said, no, he didn't really go over that. And I'm like, well, I didn't want to tell the guy. I'm thinking this guy, you don't need surgery. But I don't want to say that because I don't want to. I didn't want him to go back to the surgeon to say, this guy doesn't need surgery. Right. And then the surgeon would be mad at me. Right. So, so I didn't want that dynamic either. So I, I kind of put on the patient. I said, have a frank conversation with your doctor about expectations. You know, the question should be, will my pain be gone after the surgery? And, and what percentage of my pain will be gone? And so I just put that on his lap. And he was very adamant about having surgery. And sometimes people think surgery is going to fix me. Right. And, and my job is to talk him out of that. Because nine times out of 10, I'm not referring my patients to surgery because they don't need it. They, there's so many other things that come before surgery. Yeah. So many other things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just like if, if you have chest pain, you're not getting open heart surgery the next day. <laughs> exactly. You're going to, you're going to see your cardiologist. He's going to do, maybe from, you know, probably internal medicine doctor. They're going to do all these labs. Right. Maybe get referred to cardiologists. And many, many years down the road, you might have surgery. Well, I'm that guy for back pain. Right. You're going to, you should see me right away. Whereas, I'm not, no, a lot of family doctors will send the patients directly to a surgeon from the get-go. And, and that's, in my opinion, the wrong move. Hmm. You should see me, someone like me first to avoid surgery all those years, you know, and, and nine, again, 95% of patients avoid surgery. They don't need it. But anyway, so back to this guy, I had, a, I put it in his lap to ask the question because I didn't want to talk him out of the surgery and have that go back to the doctor. So ultimately he saw the doctor, he had the surgery. But he was so, it was more on him because he was so gung-ho in having the surgery. And the doctor wanted to perform the surgery, or the surgeon did. So he had the surgery. I saw him back in the office two months later. He's not doing so hot. Oh, God. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm kind of, not to say I told you so, and I didn't say that. But I'm like, all right, well, how can we make it feel better? So I did an injection on him, which kind of called the pain, at least for now. So for now, he's doing okay. But that's a tough conversation to have because... Patients are sometimes so gung-ho thinking surgery is going to fix me and I don't want to annoy the surgeon by taking away, basically I'm taking away his business if I tell the patient don't have surgery. So, and this is a surgeon I do work with and, I, and you know, so it's a fine line. Right. That is, oh, we do have to be a patient advocate, but we also have to protect our relationships with our referring doctors because there's going to be a patient who needs back surgery and you don't want to have burned that bridge <laughs> with the surgeon. Yes. Plus, it really, really sucks to have another doctor be mad at you. You know, it's just like a bad feeling. So 
Would you say that, I mean, I'm surprised to be honest with you that you have so many conversations with patients. I mean, that's something that I am learning from talking to you. I would think if I sent you a patient with pain, you'd be like, okay, let's schedule your X, Y, or Z procedure. But that's definitely selling you short. And maybe it's those three years of internal medicine you did first or, you know, or your dad watching your dad. But do you think that in your specialty, doctors talk a lot to patients like you do? Is that common? I hope so. <laughs> I don't know for sure, <laughs> but I hope so. And I, I, I do have upfront conversations with my patients. I want them to know all the treatment options. And, and for every patient that comes to me for the first time, I say, listen, there's five ways to treat pain. And I go through all the general ways to treat pain. And I look at their kind of face as I'm going through each way to see if they're you know, for or against right. it. And then I bring up injections. <laughs> I look at their expression. Some people are like, are like, no, I don't want the injection. Other people are nodding their head so I can read their body language. But, but I want them to know the options. I don't want anyone ever saying, the doctor only said, this is what's going to work. Like you have it now. And the only thing that's going to work is a hammer. Like, I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> right. So I want to give my patients the options. And I don't want to pressure anyone into anything or make them feel like I pressure them into anything. So I, I do want to give them options. Huh. That is amazing. So as you were talking, I was thinking to myself, I had this conversation with my 15-year-old about how to read someone. Like you're having a conversation with someone and you have to get this instinct about like, how are they responding to what I'm saying? Some doctors are terrible at that. Like they will just fire hose a patient with information and it's not wrong information. It's information that's right. It's information they need to have. But, you know, the patient's just like deer in headlights and they walk out of that office, like not knowing what's what. So I, I love that you kind of like, okay, like in your head, you're crossing off things based on their reaction and then kind of like spending more time going after what you think they're going to be more responsive to. It, it's a very difficult skill. I'm so impressed by your approach to talking to patients, Ron, really. So what about narcotics? Do you prescribe narcotics? We do not. I did in my first practice. I was in a practice in a big group and I was the narcotic prescribing guy. Wow. And so, and so I kind of got scarred and jaded from that. And my impression of narcotics is that when I see people in the office and I, I prescribed narcotics for five years, every patient had 10 out of 10 pain, mm. no matter what. And I'm like, well, if you have 10 out of 10 pain, what's the point of prescribing these pain medications? Cause you can't get any worse than 10. <laughs> and they would say, Oh no, I need the pain medications to make it tolerable. But now in my practice, which I've been practicing, which I've been in this practice for five years, it's a private practice. I don't get the 10 out of 10 pains anymore. It's more like six to eight, four. And when, when I did injections with people on narcotics, they didn't really get better. Mm -hmm. They just kind of just managed. Whereas now patients are truly getting better. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's the difference that I'm seeing. So yes, there's a place for narcotics. It's important in certain situations, but not every situation. And most of the situations that I deal with, I prefer them not on narcotics and I could manage them better that way. Yeah. Have you ever had to, before this practice, have you had to tell a patient that you were going to no longer prescribe their narcotics? Uh, yes. And those are my bad Google reviews. <laughs> <laughs> oh my so, God. So, tell me funny. about my, that. My, well, my kids, I have a 15 and a 13 year old, so they sometimes will type in my name and they're like, daddy, you have a bad Google review. I'm like, I know that's when this patient, I, so 
I had a, my first practice, I had a partner and he was, he was give prescribed heavy doses of pain medications, which was fine, but he moved away and I picked up his entire practice. So all of a sudden overnight, I had a lot of patients on my lap that were prescribed, that were in need of narcotics. So I saw this gentleman and he was on high doses of morphine and this and that. So I said, it's not my style to prescribe those medications. I think it's probably in our best interest together to see if we can wean you off slowly. Well, he didn't take that well. He thought he went online and said, this doctor pretends like he knows my pain and I need these medications to help me thrive and survive. Mm -hmm. And there's this whole scathing review that I didn't understand his pain. And that's kind of, you know, one of the reasons why I'm like, I got to get out of this model because it's nothing really great comes out of it. Patients get angry when they don't get refilled their medications at times. And, and also it's more, it's a lot of burden on the staff too, prescribing pain medications. Like, you know, patients call at 4.45 on a Friday Mm -hmm. saying I need my authorization for my refills. And, and now I don't, I don't have that, which Mm -hmm. is phenomenal for me. It's great for my staff and it's a more effective practice model for me. Yeah. No, listen, you are just speaking my language. We prescribe, you know, some chronic narcotics for a few patients, but they tend to be patients that have been my patients for a long, long time who I inherited on these medicines. And if I have, you know, an 85 year old little old lady who's been on the same, you know, benzodiazepine, which is not a narcotic for those listening, but it's also a habit forming medicine that people shouldn't be on forever, right? She's been on this, you know, lorazepam one milligram every night since she's been 35 years old. Like I'm not going to be the doctor to get her off of that. (laughs) So aside from those type of cases, though, these are some of the hardest conversations I have with patients. And I too have some scathing Google reviews And, you know, they're not all from people who I didn't give narcotics to, but they tend to be from patients who didn't get what they expected from me. And it's because I didn't feel like what they expected was the right thing. So part of what we have to do in these conversations is share our side of the story. Here's why I don't think you should be on you know, 120 milligrams of morphine a day for the rest of your life. This is not good. And here are some alternatives. I think the angriest patients are the ones who we say, no, we're not prescribing this to. And I don't know what to tell you. Like, go find another doctor to prescribe it. Like, there's really no other options. Even patients who've been on long, long, long term narcotics, nobody likes to feel like they got pushed off a cliff, right? So the other half of the conversation has to be, Here's what we can do. Here's another approach. But there's always going to be those patients who don't like anything you have to say. All they Mm -hmm. want is their prescription or they're out, right? So if you were talking to a doctor, let's start there. If you were talking to another doctor who needs to give a patient bad news, what would you say is the worst thing to do. Let's start there. What would you say is like an absolute, don't do it like this? Well, I hate to, uh, in my practice, I don't like to give extreme examples. I don't like to give absolutes. So I don't want to say you have the worst this ever, or you have the worst that ever, because patients will wear that like a badge of honor. So patients will come in my office saying, this doctor said I have the worst back I've ever seen, or this doctor said I have the biggest disc herniation I've ever seen, or, you know, I have the worst spine they've ever seen. And I, and 
I, I try not to use those examples with patients because instead of saying, I don't want them to wear that like a badge of honor, because that, that'll give them a reason not to thrive in life, not to do their therapy, not to walk every day. And those are all things I advocate for. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, that's really what I would tell doctors not to do mm-hmm. is give patients a reason to, to sit on the couch all day or a reason to say, my pain's keeping me down. Um, right. and, that, and that's what I would kind of like teach my, like the students that I have in my office. And I'm thankful that I get the opportunity to teach them so I can, hopefully they can take bits and pieces of what I do and make that into their practice. But I try to kind of sway the conversation in a positive manner, but at the same time, not give them the extremes of their condition. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So I, I do that. I totally do that. And I tell people, oh my God, this is the biggest <laughs> hernia <laughs> I've ever seen or, you know, and sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's embellished. And I think the reason I do that is because I somehow want to validate the patients, whatever. I want them to feel like, oh yeah, this is really bad. And, you know, it's a little bit of like performing, right? Like you're talking to these people and you want to connect with them and you want them to know that you care. And so you say these big, huge words, but you're so right. Like then they go to you and they're like, Dr. Myers said, I have the biggest disc herniation she's ever seen. And she can't believe I can walk. (laughs) Wow. Well, there you go. So that's something I'm going to stop doing immediately. Thank you for that. And then if you were talking to patients, right, who are listening to a doctor like you, who's presenting them with a bunch of different options, right? And they're, some of the options they're being given are scary, right? So you were just saying how you read that patient and you kind of pivot your conversation. If you're the patient and you're getting this information thrown at you, and some of it is just terrifying, what would you tell a patient to do right there in the room in the middle of that conversation? I would tell them to really go home and look up the information. Talk to a family member, talk to a, a relative, and then and then if you have questions, email me. Because at the time, at the moment, they're they're scared. They don't know what the options are. Like I was saying, there's a procedure that I offer, which might sound scary, but it's it's basically this minimally invasive surgery procedure, not even surgery procedure that'll avoid surgery in many many patients. And at the time, patients, it's a big thing to hear, but I want them to understand it. And you know, I don't have all the time in the world to explain it in depth. I, I wish I had more time with patients, but I want them to kind of research it and talk to people about it and talk to family members about it. And then if there's any questions, I want them to kind of sit down in front of the computer afterwards and they can email me any of their questions and I'm happy to reply to them afterwards. Mm. So so do you say that? Because I, I know I do. Like when we've had a very complicated conversation and it's never about a procedure I want to do on them, but whatever it's about, I say, listen, I know I said a lot of words. I threw a lot at you. Go home, digest it all. It's always in there, you know, written out after visit summary, read through it, and then reach out to me and we can go over the details. But do you think most doctors, and not primary care, because I feel like we have more time to do that kind of stuff. Do you think more doctors in procedure-based specialties do that? Or do you think most doctors are like, here are the options, make a decision. I think it's both. I'll give an example of a patient I saw somewhat recently, and it's a, and I, it's a woman I saw after the fact. So it's a woman that was in orthopedic practice. She had an EMG that showed carpal tunnel syndrome. And an EMG is a diagnostic test where you can test for things like carpal tunnel syndrome, 
but uh, what we learn is that any any study or test is an extension of your history and your examination. So without the appropriate history and examination, the test is worthless, basically. You need all three things to match up, the history, the examination, the study. So in this case, the first two parts didn't match up, but she had an EMG that said carpal tunnel syndrome, which for those who don't know, it's, it's when you get numbness in your thumb and your index finger and, and, and middle finger. So she came into the doctor with this EMG and it said carpal tunnel syndrome. So the doctor said, I'm going to operate. And I don't think he even looked at the patient or, or examined the patient, but he did the surgery because the EMG said carpal tunnel syndrome. Mm-hmm. And she came back to him and the doctor said, hey, how's your symptoms? She's like, well, I still have numbness in my fourth and fifth fingers. Oh, my God. <laughs> which had nothing to do with her history and physical, but the EMG said carpal tunnel syndrome. So he's like, oh, well, we can also do this release separately from the carpal tunnel release since it seems like you have a different diagnosis. But he was, in essence, he was backpedaling because he realized he did the wrong procedure because mm-hmm. her symptoms didn't match up with the EMG, but he was treating a study, not the actual patient. So she went up my doorstep and I said, well, let's just try some other things. And she didn't want to see go back to the surgeon anyway. But you know what I tell my students and the patients, or I guess the students, is that you're treating the patient. You're not treating a study. You're not treating the MRI. Mm-hmm. You're not treating the EMG. You're Absolutely. treating the person in front of you. 100%. So a lot of times when we check MRIs, there's disc herniations everywhere. There's problems everywhere. Like there's been studies, not to like get too in, in, into studies, but like they took 100 people on the street with no back pain. They did an MRI of all 100 people and half the people had disc herniations and disc bulges, but no pain. So that just goes to the point that people have these problems in their back all the time mm-hmm. without any pain. So my job is to correlate, all right, what's the cause of your pain and your symptoms? And I have to make sure the history, the exam, and the, the imaging, the MRI, AMG, whatever it is, all match up. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I say that all the time. You're not treating a piece of paper. You're treating a human being. So I have two follow-up questions to that one. One, how do you tell the patient that, the orthopedic surgeon did the wrong procedure on her, did the wrong thing. Do you? And if so, how? In that case, I didn't quite say it in, in those words because I think the patient kind of knew it already. And because she implied it by her, by the history that she gave me, she kind of said, he did the surgery. It didn't help. Mm. And, but I had this pain all along on the other side of my hand. <laughs> and so I think she, she, she knew the story. I didn't, I didn't call the surgeon. There's there no point to call the surgeon at that time. The, the damage was done, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But I just told her about options we could do moving forward. And ultimately, she had some kind of neuropathy that I gave her some medication and she's feeling better. So, so that she's getting better without any, any additional surgery. She's, you know, kind of doing well with the medication. So throwing other doctors under the bus is not your style hearing. <laughs> not my style. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. Actually, it really should be no doctor's style, no professional style. So is there anything else about conversations with patients, especially in your specialty, Ron, about, you know, chronic pain, back pain, imaging tests? Is, are there any words of wisdom that you want to leave patients with and doctors with? As far as the, the patients, I mean, this is kind of generic, but it is so important. Most of my population is the, we'll call it the patients in their 60s, 70s, 80s. And I tell every patient, Motion is lotion. Like in other words, <laughs> walking every day is so important. Like the patients that I see in my office, like for example, I had a 90 year old woman 
that had a back that looked like the worst back I've ever seen. Not to like <laughs> contradict what I said before, but it, her spine was like collapsing on itself. There was no room for the nerves to, to, to go through the legs. She had severe stenosis, but she hopped up on the table. She was very spry. I'm like, what's your secret? I mean, wh what have you been doing? You look great for 93 years old. And she's like, I've been wa walking a mile a day at the YMCA for the past 50 years. Oh my she just God. kept walking every day. Wow. And I was like, I was so impressed by this woman. Whereas on the opposite end of the spectrum, I see a 60 year old with kind of a mild to moderate looking spine. And they're like in the chair all day, in bed all day, they can't move. And, and so it's so important to stay active and it, it helps not just the back, but every system in your body. Mm -hmm. And that, that's really when I, what I want to scream at every patient that it's so important to just get out there and walk, exercise, whatever you want to do in life, golf, tennis, you know, whatever, just do something and, and stay active. Motion is lotion. I'm totally <laughs> stealing that. Um, and what about doctors? As far as doctors, I know it's hard. We're all busy. We're all scrambling to the next patient. But I, I don't want the patients leaving the room as if they, if they still have a question, if they still have some, something that's going unanswered. So before I leave every room, I say, do you have any questions for me? Because um, I want to make sure they, that their visit is complete. Mm -hmm. and, and if they do, I'll stay there until every question is answered. But I want to make sure before I leave the room that they're happy with the encounter. And, you know, oftentimes they are. And, and, and I don't want them kind of come back and say, this doctor didn't answer my questions. He didn't address my needs. That will get at me if that happens. Yeah. So you, we need to close. <laughs> we need right. some sort of like way to close that visit. I know, you know, there are so many times when I'm literally like trying to inch my way out of the room and I'm like, please, God, I've got to get out of this room. And there's always like one more thing and one more thing. But you're right. Like if we just submit that this is going to be one of those longer visits. I think the patient satisfaction on the other side is tremendous. And, you know, it'll probably save us the next visit from having to rehash all these things. So, Ron, you seem like such a wise, experienced doctor. I'm so grateful that you are in our area. I think you are going to not know what to do with yourself when you start getting serious referrals from our practice because I didn't <laughs> really know you until today. So thank you so much for your time. You have been just so helpful. Please sock away some of these stories so I can talk to you again and share <laughs> more of your wisdom. For everybody listening, if you have had a terrible or great medical conversation, I want to hear from you. Please email me, Christine at christinemeyermd.com. Thank you so much for listening. Are you ready to join our conversation? Just go to Facebook and search Christine Meyer MD. Follow us to join 14,000 other people committed to creating better conversations in healthcare. <laughs>